Our key scripture for today's message, your body, God's glory, in our Grow Closer to God series, is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Now, we're going to spend this Sunday and next looking at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and possibly a further week, because this is a rich a couple verses in the Bible, a central and essential heart heart of the gospel and heart of Christian life message. So today, begin with Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Hear now God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So we have this command on which we focus today. God is calling you, if you are a Christian, God is calling all of us in the church and those who follow the way of the Lord to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God. Many of you will know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. Probably a number of you have followed her through the years, read her books, heard her talks. A great Christian leader for really over 50 years, an amazing woman. Back in 1967, when Johnny Erickson Tata was 17 years old, heading into her senior year of high school, uh, one summer day she was out with some friends swimming in the Chesapeake Bay area, and she misjudged the depth uh, below a little uh, dock from which she dove, and she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, hit her head and her neck and her back, and uh, there was a fracture between the fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae, uh, leaving her paralyzed, as it turns out, for the rest of her life from basically just below her shoulders down. Uh, she has then gone on to, since 1967, she was at the time a professing Christian, but her faith became much, much deeper. And she uh, was granted by God to have a powerful testimony and teaching ministry and evangelism evangelism ministry for, for decades to come, and she's still very active even now. In her book, uh, Diamonds in the Dust, Johnny Erickson Tata, you know, a paralyzed woman, writes this, your heart, your mind, your hands, and your feet are stamped with the imprint of the creator. There you see Johnny right there, and that's what she's saying. In other words, your body and her body and every part of her body and who she is is stamped with the imprint of your creator because you're made, even in our fallen state, we are still made in the image. We improperly reflect it, but we're still made in the image of God. So she says this, little wonder that the devil wants you to be ashamed of your body. 
Of course, that's relevant to all of us. Certainly by the time you get into the 21st century with everybody wanting to transform their body, hate their own body. I wish I had this hair instead of that hair, only that's kind of a mild, plain vanilla version of us trying to be somebody that we're not uh, reshape our body, put new marks on our body, do this, that, and the other thing. But look at this woman, Johnny Erickson Tadanow, um, a, a, a beautiful woman, a beautiful daughter of the king who says, do not be ashamed of your body or any part of your body. It all is for the glory of God, and you are made in the image of God to reflect and to present uh, yourself and your body to God, fully pleasing to God. This is the calling of the scripture that we focus on today. Now, let me pull back and give you some general information. Mayo Clinic researchers have recently concluded and kind of compiled from a number of research projects over the last couple of decades that this consistently is true. Most studies show that religious faith involvement and active involvement in regular worship, participating in worship for adults, for teenagers, for children, leads to much better physical health and mental health. There seems to be a direct correlation between the activity of being part of a worshiping community and actually showing up for worship. You know, not just saying, well, I, I support you, I applaud you from a distance, I'm just too busy, I, my, my, my schedule is booked, but actually being involved in a living faith, an active worship, leads to much better physical health, much, uh, you know, great improvement with respect to blood pressure issues, uh, mental health issues, longevity issues, in fact, a specific study came out recently, which is pretty interesting, from Dr. Jana Berkelsel of the University of Mannheim. And she published in her research that for poor people, for impoverished people, that regular involvement in worship and faith-based fellowship that flows out of worship mitigates the tendency of impoverished people towards mental and physical problems with their uh, precarious financial situation. Isn't that interesting? So for poor people, for middle-class people, for wealthy people, it's just a lot better to be in worship and to have a faith foundation that is actually active. In other words, to present your bodies to God and to present yourself to God on a regular basis. Stronger immune systems, decreased anxiety, lower rates of depression and suicide. You know, we're in an epidemic right now of anxiety and uh, depression because there's just too many choices. I mean, everybody gets to choose what they're going to do, who they're going to be, how they're going to redefine themselves all the time. And that combined with social media has been a really bad mix for current uh, teenagers through young adults. I mean, the, 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 the depression, anxiety, and suicide rates are statistically exponentially through the roof compared to what they were 30, 40, 50 years ago. Well, let's pull back from that, though, and focus in a little bit more on what we're here to talk about today, which is not just general worship, but God-led, God-specified worship. As you open the Bible and study the Bible, you may know this, God is incredibly specific 
about not only how we're supposed to live in certain situations, but also worship. A lot of us tend to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a modern or postmodern person. I just kind of want to worship the way I feel like. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what God says. God is very specific about worship and not just about the details of the worship, although certainly the details, but also the foundation and the direction of our worship. If you go back to the Old Testament, this is really important. In the Ten Commandments, which are central in the Old Testament and for the, the, the covenant that God makes with Israel, you start reading the Ten Commandments and you start off with who God is and who we are as belonging to him, the people of Israel, at least in this case, who they are and whose they are and what God has done for them, his outpouring of mercies for them, his, his grace for them. He says, I am the Lord. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse two. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you, who delivered you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, a house of bondage. Okay, that's called the, the prelude or the introduction to what are called the Ten Commandments. And then what, what's the, the first several commandments? In the Bible, these are referred to typically as the first table or the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. And they're all about worship. I mean, it bridges into the way you live, but it flows from the pivot of worshiping God correctly, spiritually. And so from this, I'm the Lord your God, you know, who brought you out of Egypt, who delivered you out of the house of bondage. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods in my presence. You don't mix and match with worship. There's one God. You worship me alone. And then you move on through the commandments. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. It's God is very specific about you know, the way we worship, the, the, the flavor of our worship, what he wants and doesn't want in our worship. You shall, this is the third one now, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay, let's get to number four, the final one of the first tablet. And what's that about? Well, lo and behold, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So, so that's the sequence and the pivot in, in, in what God wants of his people in the Old Testament. In other words, his people are to be faithful and reverent in their worship. And then that flows out into everything they do. It's not just in worship that you shall have no other gods. You shall have no other gods in God's presence. Don't bring all these idols and other gods into God's presence in the rest of your life too, flowing out from your worship. In the New Testament, Jesus, uh, this is a pretty important passage in John's gospel, John chapter four. Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman um, outside of Sychar, a, a Samaritan woman at, at a well. And, and at, 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 at a kind of a crescendo of this conversation, Jesus says this, this is John four twenty three. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is the kind of worshiper that God the Father is seeking. The Father is seeking such people 
to worship him, Jesus says. Now, with that context and that understood, let's turn to Romans. Paul, the apostle, his epistle to the church, the Christian church at Rome. And big picture on this book, uh, this letter, the way Romans is arranged, the main portion of Romans can be divided into three parts. Chapters 1 through 11 are Paul's proclamation of the gospel. And, and this could also be termed as theology. It's theology. It's, by the way, if you like these, if you know these kind of terms, it's a lot of Christology and soteriology, how we're saved, who Jesus is, how it works out. Uh, justification by faith and so on, all the way through to assurance of our salvation, God's election, God's, uh, you know, God's control, God's sovereign grace and all this, all the way through an affirmation in Romans 9 through 11 that God's covenant with Israel, I was talking about that earlier with Moses and the Ten Commandments and everything, that God has not forsaken his covenant with Israel, but that the new covenant and Gentiles and Jews coming together, it somehow fits with, in fact, God's fulfillment of his foundational covenant with Israel. So all that, that's a lot of doctrine and a lot of teaching about the gospel and how it shapes out with the, the, the covenant with Israel and the new covenant through Christ. That's all Romans 1 through 11. And then, by the way, to the third part, uh, from Romans chapter 12, verse 3, all the way through about the middle of chapter 15, you're dealing with Christian lifestyle that flows from the doctrine or from the gospel. In other words, how are we going to live as gospel people? So, so you got the gospel and how it shapes out and explaining all that. And how are we supposed to live like day to day, week to week? Well, what did I leave out? I left out the middle. And I've been talking about like chapters, right? The middle part, the heart of the matter, the pivot here that we're focusing on for this Sunday and the next one or two, two little verses. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Now, see, that's the pivot from the gospel and from theology and how we're saved to how we're supposed to live it out. What is the pivot? What's the heart of the matter? It's how we worship and live as worshipers before God. Two little verses that pack a whole lot of power. Just like, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who delivered you out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other God before me. Same kind of thing here. So we're looking at sanctified worship then as we turn to verses 1 and 2. Today, verse 1. Again, uh, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable or pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I have the three movements for you in the sermon notes. You can write in the bulletin. If you're watching online, you can access this. It's online. Or you can follow along probably on the screen. We'll have a few of these. So number one is God's incalculable gospel mercies 
aren't just there back in, you know, chapters 1 through 11 and particularly 1 through 8 for our intellectual curiosity. They are, in fact, a power. God's mercies are a power from God. The gospel is a power from God that compels us and equips us to worship in a Christian way and to live in a Christian way. So the mercies are the power of God at work in us by Christ and by the Spirit of God. I've already talked about that pivot with Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Uh, let me go to the therefore. If you've been in any Bible studies with me or any credible Bible teacher, you know it's a cliche, but it's really important. When you read in the Bible, right, and you hit a therefore, what are you supposed to ask? What is the therefore? Therefore, okay? What's it there for? Um, what is it there for? Now, let me tell you, in, in the New Testament, which is written originally in Greek, there's 526 uns, and they can be translated as then sometimes, and sometimes as therefore. There's a whole bunch of them. Some commentators and Bible teachers state that the therefore, the un, in Romans 12, 1, is the most important, most consequential of all the 526 uh, uns in the entire New Testament. I think it's very important. I'm not going to go quite that strongly, even though I'm preaching to you today on 12.1 and telling you how important 12.1 is. Let me pull back and at least say there are at least three, this would be one of them, that are extremely important, therefore. In the letter to the Romans itself, back in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Romans 8, verse 1, uh, Paul says um, that... There is, therefore, now no condemnation. And you don't need to feel condemned about anything up there. Uh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's a really important therefore. In other words, after going through how, you know, Christ has shed his blood for us, how uh, Christ has taken away our sin... You get, you know, and then Paul is going through this agony in chapter 7 about what I want to do, you know, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. Then all of a sudden you get to this pivot at 8-1, and it's, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you another, therefore, that honestly I would say is ultimately a bigger deal with the kingdom. And that is in what we call the Great Commission. It's in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, um, is, is the therefore, okay? So in, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says, um, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In other words, the entire Great Commission and the whole kingdom project uh, you know, as, as Jesus sends us out. That's a very important, therefore. But this one is important, too. And, and what's happening with Romans 12, verse 1, is that the mercies of God and the therefore 
referred to as Leon Morris puts it in his excellent, it's old, but it's a great commentary on the epistle to the Romans, that this encompasses the whole, as he says, the whole massive argument that preceded it. The whole massive argument. In other words, what I was talking about, you know, Romans 1 through 11. Not just the doxology at the end of, you know, Romans chapter 11, oh, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments is past beyond tracing out. Not just that, not just even the entire conversation about Israel in chapters 9 through 11, the whole thing. All the way back to, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Greek or the Gentile. Uh, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You wanna talk about mercies overflowing, that's mercies overflowing. Uh, Romans 6, 23, I think I, ha yeah, I have this one up for you. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you've ever evangelized, and I'm, I'm trusting you have if you're a Christian, this is one of your, of course, go-to verses. I mean, this is a memory verse for pretty much any practicing, maturing Christian. You know, Romans 6, 23, when you explain the gospel and the gospel invitation to somebody, you've got to know Romans 6, 23. And I've already given you Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a guarantee. You will be saved if you truly confess and believe. So, talking about all of that. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the whole massive argument that preceded it, and back to my point, the mercies of God lead us, empower us to worship by the power of God's grace. Um, James K.A. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, he's an Augustinian philosopher who's also a Calvin you know, reformed Calvinist, uh, writing and summarizing about what John Calvin, the theologian, the reformed theologian says about worship. He says that Calvin emphasizes God's leadership of true worship. In other words, it's not about my feelings, not about my predilections. Worship, true worship is led by God, empowered by God. And Smith summarizing Calvin writes this, when we worship God according to his word, he is, God is at work in the church's worship. And uh, Smith then goes into a major critique of most contemporary worship, most <laughs> major, you know, mega contemporary worship services that are about human creativity instead of God being at work. And he also uh, critiques pretty heavily uh, traditional mainline worship in most churches as well. So. What are we talking about here? Well, let me take you back to this, your spiritual worship. That's the way the ESV translates uh, what's being said in, in the New Testament. If you're kind of a pretty old line Christian, you may be hearing in the back of your head, reasonable worship, because the King James translates 
what's given there in the Greek as reasonable worship. Well, which one is it? Those are pretty distinct, right? Spiritual and reasonable, those sound a lot different to us in English, don't they? Well, well here's the thing. The, the term that is being used there is not the standard term for spiritual. It's, it's a special term, uh, lagacane, that Paul uses here. And what it means is informed worship. And that doesn't just mean I went out and read a book. That means informed by God's word. Like, for instance, in, in John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word is logos. Okay, so the, the word-informed, word-led, this is all back to the God is leading your worship, okay? So the word-led service or the word-led worship is powered by God's gospel mercies for you. So that's number one. Number two, the first essential of a word-led or truly spiritual new covenant worship is that you and I, you're to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, pleasing to God. Now, let me say this about the body language. Ultimately, big picture, God's word through Paul is talking about, this means the entirety of who you are, okay? Just like in the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. That's really big picture what this is talking about, but it definitely includes the literal term that's being used here, your body, your body. Uh, there are threats to this. There are threats to this. We tend to, in the modern world and definitely in the 21st century, divorce our bodies and what we actually do with our bodies from our relationship with God. That's our tendency in the flesh. So what we do with God is kind of a head game. It's kind of what we do when we wanna be spiritual or kind of get ourselves kind of charged up or peaceful again or something like that. But then we go off with our bodies and think of that as something totally different, okay? Um, and the devil just absolutely loves this, like Johnny Erickson Tata is saying, yeah, sure, be ashamed of your body or think God's not interested in your body, or on the one hand, be all into what your body wants, but on the other hand, denigrate your body, you know, do all kinds of acts with it that are actually denigrating, but supposedly freedom. And then we have this internal threat that happens too. Back to James K.A. Smith in You Are What You Love. He says, and this is really pretty true, that not Luther, not Calvin, not those folks, not the first generation of reformers, not even the second generation of reformers, but after the first couple generations, the Protestant traditions and the later reformers tended to be all about head knowledge for Christianity and led to a very dry worship. You know, where we're just sitting down all the time and listening to words which is kind of what you're doing right now, right? So the call of worship is to engage all of us, all of who we are into worship of God, into live active worship. Smith refers to this as the excarnation of the Christian faith and worship. You know how Jesus became incarnate, you know, became one of us in the body uh, for our salvation. The problem is a lot of Christians kind of turn around and do an excarnation with their faith and their worship. But God's word calls us to present our bodies 
including literally our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, of course, we no longer do animal sacrifices. We, we don't need to kill anything because Jesus has fulfilled all that toward which the animal sacrifices appointed as a substitutionary issue, okay? He's fulfilled all that. So what the New Testament says is, okay, you're not bringing dead sacrifices or killing things on an altar. You're to bring your body to God and to present your body in worship and every day you live as a living sacrifice. And whatever you do with your body, it should comport with the holiness of God. It's not just a head game. Um, it's obedient service in the liturgy of life. In Romans, Paul talks about this over and over again, that we are to offer our members, in other words, every part of your body, you know, your hand, your head, your mouth, your sex organs, the whole thing should be offered and comport with God's holiness. Jesus says, uh, let your good works shine like a light before people so that they will give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Which gets us then to presenting our bodies, whose and who you are, your worship and your life. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus. By the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul talks about the marriage relationship, he says, the husband's body does not belong to the husband, but to the wife. And the wife's body does not belong to the wife, but to the husband. And by extension, if we're married to Christ, our bodies have been claimed for him. In fact, he's bought them with the bride price. His own wife laid down to redeem us and to bring us into the Father's household. That's how serious this is. So you're not your own. Glorify God in your body. Now, this is not all about sex. I know we're talking about sexuality right now on Wednesday night. But the other pertinent scripture for us today does go to the sexuality issue. But it speaks beyond it, too. Let's turn to that. We'll just read through it. Uh, with a little bit of explication, and then close our message today with this call. Uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, uh, Paul is, and the ESV helps with this by putting quotation marks, Paul is quoting slogans that, he, that the Corinthians are throwing at him, that the Christian Corinthians, because they want to have this, well, we're under the gospel, so we can do everything we want to. These would be tweets in our day, okay? So the things in quotes are from them. All things are lawful for me. Hey, I'm a gospel child. You know, all things are lawful for me. I'm not under any legalism. And then Paul says, but not all things are helpful. Again, the repeated slogan, all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Here's another quote. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. They're using that as an analogy to say sexual, you know, freedom, go for it. It's just like eating food. Who cares? You're just feeding your body, whatever you want, whatever desire you have, whatever your flavor you want today is. And Paul comes back and he says, and God will destroy both one and the other. Then he says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, you belong to Jesus and you're going to be bodily raised. Okay? We believe in the bodily resurrection. It's claimed for Christ. You better pay attention to this. That's what he's saying. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Okay, further, we're part of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then the two famous verses, 19 and 20, that flow out of this discussion. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So here's another reason. The Spirit resides within you, within you whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I was thinking about with the death of Elizabeth um, this past week. You know, here's a woman who totally presented herself, and she was a woman of faith, to the Lord and to her nation and to the commonwealth for lifelong service. She understood that she was not her own. She gave herself away for a higher royal calling. What the New Testament is tells us is all of us who are Christians are called to do the same thing. When she was anointed, which of course was not included in the televised broadcast of her coronation because it was considered holy, you know, she really believed that that christening claimed her and claimed her body. Okay, so, and claimed her for God's purposes, okay? Likewise, we are called to understand that. We're claimed. We're bought with a price. Your body, God's glory. That's your highest purpose. We say that with words. When, what's, what's the chief end of man? What's our highest and prime? How are you going to live that out to glorify God? The way you steward your body? Are you a person of excess or faithful way of Christ? with all kinds of things with your body. This is a matter of basic worship and faithfulness. I'm not here to lay a guilt trip on anybody. I'm just saying, come, trust in the power of God's gospel. It's the power to save your soul. It's also the power to redeem your body and mine. Come to him, love your body. As Nancy Piercy says in a book that I'm reading in connection with our discussions on Wednesday night, love thy body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. Love your body. It belongs to Jesus and present it to him in grace and love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.